0: I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design, recorded in the Living Kitchen Studio. There are design books, there are books about design, about designers, designers use books in their designs, and then there are the types of books from which designers might design an entire room around. Dan Whitmore is the proprietor of Whitmore Rare Books. He's a true fan of books, yes, but he's, he's both a collector and purveyor of first editions, rare books, and artistically bound treasures. I made the journey to Old Town Pasadena, which really is the perfect place for this store. And uh, by the way, I encourage you to go see. Uh, when I walked in, I got a little Harry Potter kind of feeling from the place, the smell of aged paper and leather. Dan is an interesting guy starts his business out of a a lifetime passion for old books, collecting and pursuing. Maybe it's not old books. Maybe it's rare books, I should say. For Dan, his pursuit is of first editions and collectible books. It's much like that of an art collector, wine collector, or any other true collector, for that matter. Some of these books can fetch hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more. Dan and I talk about what is inside Outside and throughout some of the most rare and sought after uh, books in his collection. This is the story of a trained and formerly practicing attorney who decided to turn a page in his career and his life and chase his passion for rare books. This is Dan Whitmore. Before we get into this conversation with Dan, I want to thank you for listening and invite you to join in the conversation. You can find us at Convo by Design on Twitter and Convo by Design this time with an X on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find videos from these conversations on our YouTube channel. Again, search Convo by Design and you'll find over 150 videos from some of your favorite guests and conversations including the following. So if you like the show, please send it to a friend so they can join in our design community. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast. Tombo by Design is presented by Snyder Diamond, a family owned and operated company serving LA's design and architecture community for over 70 years. They do this with superior customer service and provide world class products like those from Sub Zero, Wolf, and Cove. Three generations ago, Sub Zero introduced refrigeration at standard depths of kitchen counters, and they've been perfecting that ever since. The idea of disappearing refrigeration is real. And available with customized options on handles and panels that can blend in seamlessly that's on the outside inside you have proper humidity temperature control and purified air the trifecta for freshness pair that with wolf handleless wall ovens and convection steam ovens for true integration and sleek look and feel and with Wolf's advanced dual verticross convection, you get remarkable results and reliable consistency, allowing you and your clients to be the absolute best you can be in the kitchen. And right now, Zero, Wolf, and Cove are offering, through the Grand Kitchen event, three years of protection or a $1,000 rebate. These offers are only for a limited time. So for details and to see the full line of Sub-Zero Wolf and Cove products, go to any of the three Los Angeles area Snyder Diamond locations. Now, you can also see their living kitchen in the Pasadena and Santa Monica Snyder Diamond showrooms. So go check them out. Thanks. We've been having a fascinating conversation about books. As you know, I I love books. I see the art form in it. When did let 's back up a second and tell me the story when When did this become a thing for you So I
1: started collecting in earnest in law school um, before that, it was sort of a lifetime, a childhood of reading, um, but reading kind of the authors and and books that would make kind of the you know hundred greatest novels in English list or the time time list so I was kind of reading. Um, some of the classics, literature, uh, predominantly, and my brother was gifted first edition books, children's books usually, by his godfather, and this was one of those presents that had a real impact on my life in a lot of ways, not only because I was um, not receiving the same first editions uh, growing up, and I kind of had this weird, like, Relationship with his books, where I was like, "This is so cool! I love these," and he loved them to the extent that I really wanted them and was and and enjoyed having something that I that I didn't have. I was just back in Boston visiting him uh, during a book fair, and again went through his small collection, Um, as I do almost every time I see him. I'm like, "Okay, you ready for me to start selling your books for you?" And he's, "No, not yet. I'll keep keep holding on to them." So it's just one of those things where, I guess, first editions. Um, and sort of the the interest of a first edition and having that as, um, you know, a special book on your shelf was something I was aware of very early on, but I only kind of came to it when I stumbled into my own first edition um, when I was in Philadelphia, bought a book on my way home from school and found out, not expecting it was a first edition, just wanted a, a Hemingway to read, and then discovered, okay, here's a first edition, and that kind of changed the whole experience for me of that book. I was reading it so gingerly, just kind of being uh, extremely careful not to do any damage to the book. I wanted to save it, preserve it, keep it forever. I still have it. It was sort of my first collected book. Um, And from there, it just launched me into uh, this sort of insane passion to find first editions of all the books that I that were important to me personally, as well as books that I just had always kind of been after, even if they weren't, even if they weren't books, it, it sort of, it, it expands. So it starts with this core component of, oh, I'd like to just have these books. And then it, you can always find uh, other things that are out there that you'd like to have too, uh, when you start becoming a collector and, and sort of pursuing, um, you know, one author leads to another author. Um you know, a good example is Hemingway was someone I was reading a lot of and collecting a lot of. And then later on realizing that there was this Norwegian author, Knut Homson, who wrote this book, Hunger, which had impacted Hemingway and a number of these other sort of modernists. And going and, you know, finding a first edition of his book in English and reading it and seeing all of these really early, Characteristics of the modernist movement, and saying like, "Wait a second he was doing this years before any of these other guys, and so you can kind of find threads to follow through through literature, through whatever it is you're collecting, and that's one of the fun fun things about it.
0: It, it is. I, I'm curious too. Your personal experience with the books: Do you find when you're reading a first edition or some a, a book that's rare in any sense, it's rare. Um, does it change the experience for you? You know, I think
1: it. I think it does, and it doesn't. And what I mean by that is, you can be impacted by whatever the book is that you're reading. If it's a, an author you love or a book that has meaning for you, can read it in any format, and those words are going to leave a lasting impression on you. Um, what I think a first edition does, it does a couple things. One is for me, at least when I was starting to collect, it was something that was representative of me and where I was at a certain place in my life and who I was when I read it. And then, and we all kind of grow and change over time. So I've come back to certain novels, reread them and had wildly different experiences with them. And that's, you know, some of the joy of art is how it, how it affects you and how that, your impressions change over time, what you can take from it changes over time. I mean, I think great art across the board will provide that kind of experience for people. Um, the The experience of reading a book in, in the first edition I think is interesting in a number of different ways. I mean, I know I've talked to certain collectors and they say, I really, you know, we have people who read the books that they buy from us and it's sort of this, you know, pleasure and privilege for them to be able to buy a first edition, and they have a book they want to read, and so they'll, they'll, you know, have an, the next one on their list, I'm going to buy this, can you find me a first edition, we do it, but it's something like Dickens was originally issued in monthly parts, so we had someone who said, oh, I really want Dickens in parts, because that's how the first people read it, you know, when they were reading Dickens, they would receive these little, you know, there were 19... Uh, little pamphlets basically that each had two chapters that were shipped out um, every couple weeks and so someone would basically receive the next installment of the story and they'd always end on sort of a cliffhanger so you had to get the next one and read the next one but you know that's a very different way of reading Dickens than sitting down with a big heavy novel um, the way most of us read it in high school it's sort of you know having these little breaks and getting these little snippets of the story Um, so I think there is something different Certainly in reading a book in a first edition, and I think the other thing too is is trying to come to it fresh Um, Come to it in a sense that you're not um, You're not bringing all of everything that's been written before about Charles Dickens or about his you know some novel you're not bringing every criticism or Preconception about what that book should be you can come into it in a sense kind of with a blank canvas and say, what is this book going to be for me, if that makes sense. So, I think one of the things that's fun about it is sort of that, you know, taking that extra leap of saying, well, this is, you know, I can reread this in a sense, almost the same way the first person read this book. Um, So, maybe that's part of it, too.
0: Well, it is. Excuse me. And I think what's cool, what's really cool as well is the art behind a book. First edition. You've got... You've got the, and I want to talk to you about all of these, right? You've got the cover art. You've got the, the, the feeling of the binding, right? You've got the feeling of the cover. You open it up. You've got the feeling of the words that are printed. How deep, how shallow, the print the print itself the pages how they feel are they are they jagged pages are they relatively even are they super jagged or maybe just a little bit right. and then and then you've got another sensory that you've got how the book how the book itse- itself smells old books smell different right you know and and then you start to think I mean see now you got me going off you've got you have got the fact that this this book if it was printed in the 1700s I mean what did life smell like in the 1700's and it's still there sure maybe maybe it's you know it's it's gone to to a to a large degree but it was there and the fact that it was there has got you thinking about that and then it's reading the words themselves
1: sure the whole thing it's a whole fascinating experience you brought up one of the fun things about some of the more antiquarian books are early ownership markings where you can trace the provenance of a book back to some monastery in Europe or you can trace it to you know uh, some famous collector or royalty or wherever it goes and we have books currently in inventory we've got a book that was um, purchased by Henry Huntington from the Bridgewater Library he he purchased a number of um, of things from the Bridgewater Library in, including the famous Ellesmere Chaucer manuscript which is on display constantly at the Huntington um, and so there was a basically this copy was deaccessioned and we had a chance to purchase it um, about a year ago, but it's just one of those things where you're connecting. Books have had a history before they come to the to the next person, and connecting with that history is part of what's fun. Um, as a bookseller and as a book collector, is discovering some of these sort of the the provenance is what what we tend to say, but sort of the lineage of where, who was the first owner, who you know, where did that book end up and some sometimes you'll find um, you know these really interesting and unusual associations where you know it's some other author who's got a copy of somebody else's book in their library and they always sort of discuss like oh I you know I really didn't like so and so I never read any of his stuff and then you've got (laughs) you know you've got like a book there with his book plate or his signature in there and you say okay great so that was you know one of the books that was sort of in in the library so there's all sorts of fun kind of and interesting associations that can be teased out from some of the the books and the more the older they are that tends to be the more history that they have um, sort of the more opportunities for some kind of in- interesting owner uh, marginalia
0: tell me about the research do you do you enjoy the research is is that is that part of is that part of the fun it, you know you're, you're you're part anthropologist you you have to be
1: The research is fun Um, and I have a background as a lawyer so I was in law school came out worked one year as a lawyer and that's a lot of what at least when you're a junior attorney that's a lot of what the law is for you you're doing research you're very detail-oriented you're writing memos and kind of you know dotting the I's crossing the T's and that experience translates very nicely to being an antiquarian bookseller because we're looking for these very sort of arcane, minute details that have great significance and value. They can so, and what I mean by that is, oftentimes, what you'll have is basically a a first edition book. But the way you identify it is by checking for typos. Um, you know, was this page printed with this certain word misprinted, or was the type damaged? And that kind of thing can happen um, in the print run. So the first uh, the first state of a, of a leaf might have perfect type and then the type will slip a little bit down. So the second state of that leaf will have the, the D drop down a little bit and then it'll fall out altogether. So you'll have these v- sort of minute differences in a page that can change from whether the book is the first state or third state of that page and collectors are all, are generally looking for sort of that earliest printing copy, getting as close as possible to that sort of first issue of a book into the world. So, these things are very, uh, you know, I find them fascinating, they're fun, they're kind of, I mean, fun is a term we're gonna use really loosely here, <laughs> this is nerdy fun, um, but as a rare book dealer or collector these are the kinds of things that are interesting about a, the history of a book. You learn about how, how, why it was published, sort of what was going on in that in that context, and I guess putting a book in context is part of what our job is so you know, if we have a book in sort of the women's historical movement being able to sort of create that context in our written description to say well look guys we know this sounds like a pretty modern idea now that women should be able to vote but here's, <laughs> here's what was happening when this book was written and you know this is why it was so important and here's you know all the the information surrounding the person who was You know bringing this work out and how they managed to get it to press and who they sold it to and so those details are They're important. They're significant. They're in a lot of ways. They've you know, they've impacted our culture our 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 society They've you know, and there's sort of a a written history of of what's happened and and why Um, so a lot of those details I think in both identifying or looking for the the details within a book or the broader context of researching what you have um you know they they do tend to lend themselves to someone with my background of being very detail oriented and kind of focused on those minute minute um kind of things as well as especially for modern books this sort of small imperfections in a dust jacket or in a book i mean i in some ways it's kind of uh it's kind of like not fair at this point when a book comes in and say, you know, and it's a really nice looking book. And but at the same time, like the immediate reaction is to just nit nitpick, nitpick flaws and say like, okay, so this is, you know, it's a near fine, near fine copy, and then that's great. But then you go to the next part where you're like, and it's got this wrong with it, and there's this little problem. And and that's all the stuff that a collector needs to hear and that you have to be aware of while you're pricing um, because condition dictates value for uh for for most antiques and and art but you know certainly within the rare book world um you know we'll have certain books where we've got the only copy but for a lot of modern books or other things like that it's basically you know how is the condition of our copy compare with the the condition of every other copy in the world
0: you are listening to my conversation with whitmore rare books owner dan whitmore I wanted to take a break to, to share something with you. As is my habit and uh, custom, I am trying to continually introduce uh, designers, architects, those in the trade, to new sources to help you do your job better. And here's another one. If you're not familiar, Article is an online-only furniture company inspired by mid-century style and Scandinavian simplicity. You, as a design trade professional... You are going to love this style, and especially the quality of Article Furniture. You can spec this with confidence. You're going to love the style, and especially the quality. So, here's the best part. Article has created a trade program specifically for busy designers like you. Check this out. Joining the trade program, first of all, it's free. Uh, there is absolutely no minimum for you to start receiving trade discounts. None. Zero. Zero. It, you get exclusive designer pricing that cannot be found elsewhere on the internet for less. So you're you're not going to get priced and if someone come up with a with a lower price it's not going to happen to you. They offer a standard 1-year warranty on all article furniture and the shipping you're going to love this too. Flat rate in most cases if not free and it's fast. Stock items ship in 2 weeks or less and they ship anywhere you need them to go directly to the job site, if need be. They handle special invoicing, tax-exempt purchasing, and you're going to love... I keep saying it. This is amazing. The customer service is staffed by design professionals. As you know, that's a big deal. These are real people who know what you're trying to accomplish, and they have the authority to help you get what you need. So, for all the details, and to sign up for Articles Trade Program, please go to cxd.article.com. CXD, as in Convo by Design, cxd.article.com. Okay. Back to my conversation with uh, Dan Whitmore about rare and collectible books. Tell me about collecting. Who who collects? Why do they collect? And is there is there a range? Is there like you mentioned your your brother who got who got the you know certain sure. first, first editions and is is there <clears throat> if someone has a has a passion for books but they never thought about becoming a collector where does it start and how does how does someone become how do you recommend that someone starts a collection
1: so i've met a number of people who who are voracious readers book lovers but they don't necessarily want to become collectors and that's i think it really comes back to personality type i think there's some people in the world who enjoy collecting things i mean they and i know that when i was a kid i was picking up rocks and putting them in my pockets or looking for you know st- like stuff whatever it was you know at that age i was kind of like oh it's baseball cards oh it's this Oh, it's that and i was just always a collector i you know that was kind of my personality and and my instinct so i think in some ways there's maybe something innate in people where they tend to collect or they tend not to collect things. Um, Within, and so there's a number of people I know who have collected different types of things. Oh, I was collecting modern art or I collect Persian rugs or I collect wine and then, or cars, and then they sort of bridge over to books. Um, The thing about books that I think is particularly interesting for a lot of people is that you can bridge that gap. If you're collecting fine wine, you can collect books about wine or you can collect books about sort of the history of the automobile industry or something else. It can almost always tie in with whatever it is that, that interests you outside of book collecting. So, you know, people have interests in in any number of different areas. And one of the things that's great about books is you can kind of connect to different you know, different areas, if it's science, if it's technology, if it's the history of computers, if it's, um, you know, for me, it's literature is kind of where I've found myself drawn just because I was reading great literature and loved it. So that was kind of my, you know, my inroad. Um, As far as why, you know, why someone should collect, I think it's, um, you know, it's a very kind of an a personal, uh, building a library I guess was, was my goal when I was in law school and then I started my career as a lawyer, I had this vision of the house, my perfect house had to have a library. And within that library I wanted to have the books that were important to me. Um, anytime I go to someone's house, I look at their books because when I see what they're reading or what they've chosen to keep, I mean, it tells me something about that person. So I stay with a buddy um, when I go to New York. He reads all the time, and he's got great books. And he's just—he's one of the most well-read people I know. He doesn't collect books, but every time I go and I'm, you know, I'm staying with him, I always take a look at sort of what's new on the shelves. What's, you know, what does he have there? And we have these great conversations just about different books. What did he like? What did he didn't like? You know, how, you know, what's he. What's he found recently that sort of connects back and those kinds of conversations as well as sort of the, you know, the way that you can connect with people when you start to understand what is it in in a book that that they found interesting or what did they like? Um, I mean, I think it's literature or, you know, books in general kind of provide a pretty um, rich fabric. To start a conversation with someone especially when you sort of how to have a shared interest in some sense so um, yeah I don't know if I answered your question no you did or, or or if I got sidetracked
0: you know what and that's the that's the best answer in the world <laughs> I know I love that I'm curious too. you know how you always hear the stories about the, the million dollar plus comic book that somebody picked up at a garage sale or the copy of the Constitution that was, you know, on the on the back of a on the backing of a picture in a cheap two dollar frame. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where <laughs> you know where I'm going? Where what is what is collecting for for books? I, I find it fascinating because these, you know, they could be anywhere. They could be in old collections of libraries. They could be in boxes that friends of a certain library haven't even gone through yet. They could be from a collector's you know, a collection that they're looking to move out so they can move something else in. Where where are you finding, where are some of the more unique places and, and where does the business send and where are people picking up, you know, the, the kind of collectible books nowadays? Is it is it still the kind of thing where someone can go in and if they like to look for things and they want to be the, the homemade anthropologist where they can go in and go through through boxes of books and, and find something, where do... Or do like for you the majority of books are now now that you've opened the shop people are coming to you
1: so We have um, we have a number of avenues for sourcing new material Um, We purchase from private collections we purchase from collectors we purchase from other dealers and we purchase at auction Um, That's kind of most of where we get inventory. We have people bring books to sell to us and with more frequency now that we've got the open shop, which is great. Um, As far as finding those kind of hidden gems, I mean, I have people ask me, oh, do you go to a lot of estate sales? No, I don't go to any because (laughs) I, I, I don't have time to go to 100 estate sales to find one great book. I'd much rather have the people who are going to estate sales bring me their one great book and we can pay them a fair fair price for it and you know then we can hopefully sell it for them so um, I can understand in, in with with a certain shop that might play a bigger role um, our inventory is quite limited so we've focused very specifically on high-end sort of a little bit towards the higher end of the market um, when it comes to price point, kind of fine first editions. We have signed books. We have sort of significant works of Western culture. um, And it's one of those things where these books are rarely kind of they're rarely sleepers, <laughs> you know. These are kind of the things where, if it comes up at auction, you've got a lot of competition for it. Um, we were kind of laughing about earlier about that uh, Shakespeare folio that just came up at auction. Um, uh, you know, when a when a Shakespeare folio comes up at auction. It, people know what it is. It's not like, oh, (laughs) I wonder what that is. Is that a good book? You know, it's like, yeah, everyone knows that's a great book and everyone's trying to get it. And there's a lot of competition for it. So the types of things that we're buying, um, there's a lot of competition for. Um, I mean, we did have a great, we had a really great experience a couple years ago where someone had found a, a first edition copy of on the origin of species sitting on their shelf <laughs> and, they, and they put it up on ebay with a starting bid of a hundred dollars and it was one of those things where you know that was just one of those fines and and see that's th- what i'm talking about and, and, they, and they're and out so, there so the, it is they are out there and the people i mean it ended up selling i think it ended up selling for right around seventy five thousand dollars on ebay and, and is that where it should have gone? Is uh, that is that where it should have been? That's um that's a complicated question. I I mean because we obviously asked for more when we resold it. Um but yeah, it seemed like it seemed like a relatively, you know, pretty fair price at the time for where it should go. And there was obviously dealer competition to try and purchase that book. The other thing I'd say is that the people who were selling it really had no idea what they had. Until it sold and then they just couldn't believe it and they were completely over the moon It was I mean, like, you know finding a $75,000 lottery ticket like in an old shoebox, box and be, like, And they you know they were telling me that they were like they wanted to go visit their Their daughter and you know and they weren't sure they could afford tickets and this and that But now they were gonna do this family vacation and bring everyone on you know on a trip together and it was just the most you know, it couldn't have gone to nicer people and couldn't have been sort of a better overall sort of experience for, you know, both for them to have found this great thing, Um, you know, for us to have bought it. We were happy to buy the book. Um, On the Origin of Species is one of those books where, like, the the price point for it continues to ratchet up, and it's done so significantly over the last couple years. So there, you know, there have been copies... um, Coming up recently, bringing quite a bit of money at auction. Um, so when you say kind of where's the market at, it's you know it's sort of a moving target right now. Is
0: which is why I was I was sort of waffling on that. that you were you were a waffling bit. a little bit, but I, but I get that. But at the same time, I mean, with with any art form, that's going to happen. Yeah, you're going to have fluctuations in it. You're going to have there's timing. There's yeah. there's great finds. There's you know. There's there's always a case of, there was a collector and nobody knew they were a collector and right. all of a sudden they die and they they bequeath this to their family members and, and then you see a collection when you when you hear about stories like that yeah I think th- I, I mean sorry to interrupt <laughs> I
1: think the um part maybe there's an impression that we buy. A copy of on the origin of species for $100 and that's sort of not the, and that's no. not the reality of it
0: yeah no no and that's that's not what I'm suggesting yeah what I'm suggesting is that when when you mention books to most people there's not that level of excitement right and I think that it's fascinating because it's a it's a whole it's it's like it's like coin collecting or art fine art collecting it's or furniture collecting or house collecting there is there is a certain amount of enjoyment in the collecting part of it and there's a certain amount of enjoyment in the finding of it and the selling of it and the fact that you know obviously you're passionate about it because the the shop is is fantastic and i was you know just browsing around tell me again too we were talking a little bit about the binding and about the modification that one that that certain books can take and how it it sort of changes the dynamic and you were showing me a couple of copies i think that that's fascinating as well sure so um,
1: rebinding is kind of a, uh... Um, a necessary thing at a certain point i mean leather bindings tend to last a hundred and fifty maybe two hundred years but then over time leathers gonna dry out it's gonna crack especially if something's being used you know the chances of a a book surviving kind of a couple hundred years with its original leather binding intact is is fairly uncommon so um, how you restore a binding who you use for that work uh, ends up becoming quite important and we've um, you know we've tried a number of different binderies and settled on one that we think does really kind of World class work, which is uh, which is great. Took some searching to find <laughs> to find the right one, um, and then we used sort of different bindaries for different types of work. But I, I guess we're getting a little sidetracked. The um, the book that we were talking about before uh, is a copy of Pride and Prejudice from 1894. It's a signed limited edition, or sorry, not signed limited. It's a um, the first illustration first illustrated edition by um, Hugh Thompson. So the trade edition came out and it's a um, it's in this beautiful green binding with this bright gilt peacock design all over the front cover and spine. It's become one of the sort of most famous and iconic sort of publisher trade bindings out there. You see people with bags with this peacock design. You see t-shirts in the sort of Literary circles and book fairs that I end up <laughs> end up in. Um, I wouldn't suggest it's you know sort of everywhere, but but, <laughs> but it is quite a famous design. And part of what what we were laughing about earlier is that the the sort of more limited edition of this book is 250 copies, and it's printed on a finer paper. The illustrations are printed separately on a tissue and tipped in. The overall margin is it's almost twice the size of the trade edition. So you've got this beautiful sort of large paper copy that was the more limited edition, but they put it in just a very mundane, plain red cloth binding with no guilt whatsoever. And so you've, everyone who wants this book wants that peacock binding. So it's almost in some ways you're kind of left with the sort of the, you know, these two imperfect solutions. And what we ended up doing with this copy is sending it off to a a great bindery in London, the Chelsea Bindery, and they put it in a full green Morocco uh, binding with recreating sort of that gilt um, design on the front cover with some inlaid sort of little red Morocco touches. So now it's this beautiful sort of absolutely stunning binding that's um, going to stand up to significant use over time. It's the kind of thing that someone could read through cover to cover a number of times without damaging or worrying about damaging the binding. And it's kind of the best of both worlds now that we've put on sort of this, you know, it's a modern, it's a new modern binding. But in some ways it needed that because (laughs) what everyone loves about this book is the binding. And this is, you know, was the better pages, but it was lacking that sort of spectacular,
0: stunning binding. Isn't that fascinating? What they love best is the binding. Right. I don't know. I I would sort of hope that they would love. No, I, I don't. I totally get it. You know, what's interesting to me and what's striking to me is you've got these two very different approaches right where one you know to t- to take the it's almost a, a not understanding the marketing of what the author is is doing whereas you look at a dickens who said you know what we're going to put it out in a piece and then a piece and a piece and and that's a that's a little bit of genius right there <laughs> not from an authorship standpoint but from from a marketing standpoint and to keep your end user engaged. I'm sure that's not, how do I keep my end user engaged? That's not what he was thinking of, but it's a, it's a remarkable byproduct. I think it's really cool. That's, and that some collectors would want to experience that in the same way as, as so now you change a binding to be more reminiscent of how it was originally, because that's the enjoyment level. I just, I'm fascinated by all of this. It's really pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Do you have a favorite?
1: A favorite
0: book of author? Course. That's such a hard question.
1: And it changes. And it, do, you sort a,
0: <laughs> do you have a favorite author? Is Hemingway... So your first was Hemingway, For Whom the Bell Tolls, right?
1: You know, I think um, if I was forced to pick a favorite novel, it would probably be War and Peace. I, um, I read War and Peace a few years ago and was really kind of blown away with that as a as a novel, as this thing. I mean... Lord of the Rings is sort of a, you know, a throwback to my childhood, which just, you know, I read and reread that set, you know, every couple years I'd reread it. So there, I have several. I think that, um, when we have inventory come into the shop, I tend to get kind of excited about like the new thing that just came in that's like, oh, this is so great. I have a few that, um, that I think are really cool. We've got this, um, We've got the first complete edition of uh, Dante's Divine Comedy in English. And surprisingly enough, it wasn't printed in English in its entirety in, until 1802. So pretty late, considering that early Dante editions were done in the 1400s, um, it, printed in the 1400s. And what part of what I like about this, besides just the fact that it's this sort of pinnacle of world literature, is the binding itself is sort of strictly contemporary to the time that it was issued. Um, And it's really a, you know, sort of a lovely binding, but it's got a binder uh, ticket in there. So, you know, and the binder was only in business until 1809. So, So you basically have, you know, and this is part of that sort of research that you can do to say like, well, let's, you know, let's take a look at who bound this book and, you know, where was their binder and when did they you know, this looks contemporary, is it contemporary, and then, but it's really, you know, it's not every day that you have something that really gives you, like, okay, this is, (laughs) this was not bound later than 1809, and the book came out in 1802, so, like, you know, kind of strictly contemporary binding, and that's pretty, that's pretty cool to have. Um.
0: That is pretty cool to have, and it's also, I I imagine, for you, it's also pretty fascinating, too, to see these books coming through, because you can, you know we were talking about you can you can smell hundreds of you but from a technology standpoint you can also witness the change in technology and you can see you know okay here's when the industrial revolution changed the way that material was printed and right. here's the here's the way it changed how it was pressed and here's the the change and it's you're watching history happen yeah literally on the pages of the book
1: sure and if you walk through the shop you can kind of see examples from the 1400s all the way up until kind of the 2000s, you know, Harry Potter's that just came out. Um, and so we we have examples of things that are, you know, within the first 20 years of the invention of the printing press, you know, when the Gutenberg Bible was printed, it was for, uh, 1455. We've got Thomas Kempis 's The Imitation of Christ, first edition from 1473. So, you know, so within the first 20 years of printing, we've got, you know, books sort of from that vintage, as well as things that are kind of everything in between. Um, and it's kind of fun to have that kind of breadth in in the inventory, because then you, you really can kind of walk people through some of those changes over time, binding styles, types of paper, types of fonts. I mean, you know, one of the they use the term black letter to describe the, the type of font that was used on English books in the 1500s So we can sort of pull out and show examples of different types of things and someone coming in and kind of learning more about the history of Books and printing and bindings and everything else. We, we have a number of different examples in here that kind of Bring you through time, which is fun.
0: It, it is fun. And um, I'm gonna put a link to the uh, to the shop uh, in the, uh, in the show notes for the podcast and our videos. Dan, thanks for the time. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Convo by Design is proud to be working with Vendôme Furniture. Design culture... It's the key to their success. It's what pushes them to consistently create new collections that give spaces a new dimension. They create dialogue between environment and form. Van pieces can transform the simplest space into one filled with glamour that is both unique and extraordinary. And isn't that what design is all about? Creating atmospheres where you can take hold of life and enjoy it to the fullest. Van products are simple and elegant, contemporary and exceptionally comfortable. Their crafted, modern, durable, molded resin, glass, and metal designs are unique and they beg to be enjoyed. They search the planet for the right designers that embody the Van Damme spirit and work together to create remarkable pieces into an exclusively Van Damme mode of expression. And if you haven't seen Van Damme before, you can check them out in uh, some of the Convo by Design videos you'll find on our YouTube channel. But you can find them in their showrooms at the D&D building in New York, Wynwood in Miami, and the Pacific Design Center here in LA, or online at Vondam.com.